welcome back to the Complexity Premier Podcast and also obviously a very warm welcome to our many listeners. Super exciting times in financial markets and bond markets. A lot to talk about. Yingus, you well? Yeah, I'm great. How are you, Chris? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I've been uh, traveling quite a lot. But, yes, um, indeed. But uh, trying to... Keep fit and stay very much focused on the tools. Well, let's kick off. So returns in January were solid, albeit not spectacular, as the anticipated tsunami of bond supply materialised and that pushed credit spreads a little wider in some markets, which boosted running yields. Chris? Yeah, Ying, is, um, as we've long laboured, really the existential question in 2024 surrounds the juxtaposition of, on the one hand, decelerating goods inflation, against stubborn services inflation, where the latter is being bolstered by buoyant wage growth, which is obviously an artifact of incredibly tight labour markets. The big unknown is whether core inflation can sustainably straight line its way back to around 2%, as the risk junkies and many in markets boldly hope. But of course, valuations in riskier asset classes could be seriously challenging as if we do not get the benign normalisation in inflation that has been priced into so many investments. Now, cooler bars repeatedly push back against expectations of aggressive interest rate cuts in the first half of this year, which I think, uh, Ying, as the market is belatedly coming around to recognising. And we'll return to this point later, but we are also very focused on the spectre of political risks in late 2024, following what is likely to be a tumultuous US election process. And finally, there's the ubiquitous threat of global kinetic conflict as wars continue to rage in Europe and the Middle East. And this is something that we've really been warning about for many, many years indeed. And of course, readers can go to the website www.predictingwar.com to see our quantitative modelling on global kinetic military conflict probabilities. That's right, CJ. A lot to keep in the back of our minds. So in January, risk-free discount rates drifted a little wider over the month. Uh, 10-year government bond yields climbed in the UK by 26 basis points, in New Zealand by 23 basis points, in Germany by 14 basis points, in Australia by 7 basis points and in the US by three basis points, which was a process that accelerated further at the start of February following a very strong US payrolls print and some upside surprises to wages and inflation in the US. This generally taxed the performance of long-duration fixed-rate bond benchmarks, including the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Corporate Index, which lost 0.05% in its US dollar hedge iteration, or 0.06% in sterling and 0.16% in Aussie dollars. Note that the Osborne Composite Bond Index did eke out a 0.21% gain. In contrast, the zero-duration version of the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Corporate Index appreciated 0.86%, while the more highly rated and hence lower risk Osborne Floating Rate Node Index amounts 0.44%. Most equity markets shrugged these higher long-term interest rates off with healthy returns registered in Europe, and we saw the euro stocks was up 2.81%, and in the US, the S&P was up 1.59%, and the NASDAQ even rose by 1.85%. In Australia, we saw the ASX 200 up by 1.5%, 
1.18%. In New Zealand, the local stock market was up 0.86%, although the FTSE 100 in the UK lost 1.33%. Cash credit spreads were similarly indifferent with spread compression in Europe by eight basis points, in the UK by eight basis points, and the US by three basis points. Australia did buck this trend as spreads increased by one basis point. In respect of the antipodes, Big four major banks' senior bond spreads also widened by one basis point at the five-year maturity. There was notably sharper spread expansion in the four major banks' T2 bonds, which increased by 13 basis points at the five-year maturity, and their AT1 hybrid securities, which rose by 16 basis points for their five-year product. Yeah, so there were a lot of opportunities in January for us seeing as uh, we were super active in the new issue or primary markets globally in the month and have been in 2024, my guess is we've probably invested in 25 to 30 new issues in dollar sterling and euros and a similar quantum in Asia. We certainly evaluated attractive new issues in January from the likes of Credit Agricole, BPCE, NatWest, BFCM, ABN AMRO, KBC and Rabo in Europe. In the US from NAB, BPCE, ANZ, RBC, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Bank of America and the Bank of New Zealand. And in Australia from ANZ, Westpac Credit Agricole, the New South Wales government, the Queensland government and Heritage Bank. There have been many standout transactions in the antipodes, uh, including massive $5 billion plus senior deals from Westpac and ANZ a record $2.285 billion tier two issue from ANZ, a $1.7 billion tier two issue from NAB, and a record-breaking tier two transaction from Macquarie, which we'll come back to later, Yingers. Uh, in total, we've been, as I mentioned, pretty active across our 42 executives. So uh, the team comprises these days 12 traders and portfolio managers and 15 analysts. We're obviously responsible for running a little north of $10 billion in FUM in total. And we've executed about $31 billion of global bond trades in this 2024 calendar year to date. That's quite a big number. So in January, performance highlights included Coolabar's Zero Duration, A-plus rated daily liquidity long short credit fund, which returned 0.56% net of retail fees in the month and has delivered 12.93% to 13.1% net retail over the last 12 months, outperforming the RBA's cash rate at 3.95%. Note that the Kiwi dollar unit class returned 15.34% net, while the US dollar unit class paid 14.17% net over the same period. The zero-duration A-rated daily liquidity floating rate high-yield fund returned 0.42 to 0.44% net of retail fees in January and 11.64 to 11.88% net over the 12 months to the 31st of January, outperforming the Osborne floating rate note index's 5.08% and the RBA cash rate's 3.95%. In the long duration space, Coolabar's class leading 5.1 year duration active composite bond fund, note that the ETF ticker is FIXD, outperformed the composite bond index by 0.1% net in January, and it has returned 7.23% net of fees compared to the index's 2.45% over the last 12 months, representing a net excess return of 4.78%. Coolabar's new global active credit strategy beat the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Corporate Index by 0.37% net in January. Uh, that return is the Aussie dollar unit class. Uh, and it returned 8.15% net since its 10th of October 2023 inception, which represents a 1.16% net excess return over the index. Coolabar's new AAA rated zero duration daily liquidity active sovereign bond fund returned 0.38% net retail 
now, or 0.44% gross, in January in its first full month since inception. The long 5.6-year duration unit class also returned 0.22% net, or 0.28% gross, in January, outperforming its benchmark, the Osborne Treasury Index return of 0.16%. Coolabar's lowest volatility strategies, the zero-duration A-rated daily liquidity smarter money and short-term income funds, uh, note that the, the latter's ETF ticker is FRNS, respectively returned 0.41 to 0.45% net in January and 639 and 6.33% net over the prior 12 months, outperforming the Osborne FRN indexes 5.08% and the RBA cash rates 3.95%. Now note guys, uh, past performance is no guide to future returns. So please read the product disclosure statements to better understand the risks associated with these products. Now, Chris, are we seeing any portfolio shifts of late from institutions given the striking increase in yields? 100% Ingers. One of the biggest thematics in recent times has been a shift in asset allocation from large instos, including pension and sovereign wealth funds, out of illiquid assets and equities, given they're paying miserly risk premium. And we're seeing them moving into high-grade bonds that are offering the best yields in decades. This has been clear in the enormous record-breaking book builds reported by issuers into Asia, which we'll return to shortly. In Australia, we've seen super funds that have been internalizing their investment teams, and those new capabilities have been participating directly in the bond market in a totally unprecedented fashion. For example, in January, in ANZ's record-breaking tier two trade, there were more than six new super funds that participated that had not been previously present in their tier two transactions. And in that same month, ANZ broke the record for the largest Aussie dollar senior transaction ever, securing $8.1 billion of bids for its concurrent three and five year transaction on the back of that swelling domestic and also offshore demand. In particular, in that transaction, there was a conspicuous increase in the presence of sovereign wealth funds official institutions, so government agencies, and Asian bank balance sheets. And then in February, we saw Macquarie Bank blow ANZ's tier two record out of the water, which is extraordinary considering the major banks, the big four Aussie bank bond issues, almost always attract a much deeper pool of investors relative to Macquarie, given the big four's superior credit ratings and perceived safety. Macquarie is obviously at the bank level rated A+, the big four are rated AA-. Minus. And just to clarify, in January, ANZ had set a record for the biggest book build in Australia New Zealand ever for a T2 trade. And that had crystallized $4.1 billion of demand for ANZ's T2 security. So we move forward into February and Macquarie's book build peaked at almost $5 billion of demand or $900 million more than ANZ's record book build in January. And many multiples of what Macquarie's prior T2 transactions would have secured in terms of the interest for those trades. Now, this thing is, is despite the fact that Macquarie's triple B rated tier two bond had a one notch lower credit rating than ANZ's triple B plus rated security, and interestingly paid the same 195 basis point spread above cash uh, that ANZ had paid. All in, Macquarie's floating rate tier two was providing an interest rate of 6.3% per annum. And it's noteworthy that back in 2021, the same bond would have only paid 1.6% per annum. So the huge increase in overall yields is just driving tremendous retail, mid-market, private bank, pension fund, insurance, and bank balance sheet demand. Given the tremendous interest in the transaction, Macquarie paid a pretty skinny new issue concession or extra interest rate margin to investors in compensation for us 
buying the bond. So whereas both ANZ and NAB in their uh, Aussie dollar tier two trades had paid 10 to 15 basis points of concession, uh, Macquarie cuffed up less than half this quantum. Now that concession's price relative to what we describe as the prevailing secondary market fair value curves at the time the deals are printed. It is true, Ying, is that our friends at Macquarie have a reputation for being parsimonious uh, with their concessions. It's something that we've taken up with them previously uh, on several occasions in the past. And this has created ructions amongst global investors unhappy with the investment bank's approach to managing its creditors. There have, for example, been instances where offshore investors have shunned Macquarie bond issues, more or less boycotted them, given concerns about its myopic approach to minimising its cost of capital. I do think that the current Treasury team are very sensitive to this and they can be, I think, you know, reasonable to deal with the global currencies that we uh, transact in, uh, in Macquarie trades. Having said that, trying to gobble up every single basis point of new issue value and not sharing any concession with lenders such as ourselves during the good times is not, for the avoidance of doubt, an especially prudent approach for a 10 to 20 times levered bank when dealing with debt markets that, make no mistake, have long memories apropos poor issuance behaviour. In this case, however, the folks at the Millionaire's Factory, as Macquarie is known, were arguably justified in pricing the Tier 2 bond where they did, and it has since performed brilliantly, and we obviously participated in the trade. Investors can hardly quibble yingers with a Pivey concession, given there was almost $5 billion of demand to buy a $1.25 billion security, which has since gapped 5 to 10 basis points tighter in spread terms or higher in price on the break, furnishing creditors with instant capital gains. And just for disclosure reasons, uh, we've participated in every single deal that we've talked about thus far. I think is if we abstract away and zoom up to sort of SR71 levels at you know, 60 to 80,000 feet above sea level, the more interesting dynamic here is the demonstrable shift in the asset allocation preferences of these sophisticated investors. In addition to pension funds seeking to diversify away from illiquids and equities, there's been a discernible expansion in the appetite for high-yielding bank bonds amongst high-net-worth investors with record private bank and other so-called mid-market bids reported by issuers in these transactions. Aussie super funds are interesting also because historically they've had the highest portfolio weights to listed shares and the lowest exposures to cash and bonds of any pension system in the OECD. Australia's largest sovereign wealth fund known as the Future Fund has also loaded up to the gills with illiquids and risky alternative investments, historically speaking, in preference to holding high-grade cash and bonds. Now, this made a great deal of sense as over the last 30 to 40 years as central banks uh, were consistently cutting policy rates in response to the world transitioning to a regime characterised by very low inflation, which then powered asset prices higher as the steady-state risk-free discount rate declined. That was the so-called low-rates-for-long paradigm that prevailed over the 1990s and 2000s, which led many households and businesses to believe that the price of money would remain cheap in perpetuity. And, you know, we were told as much by the RBA itself during the pandemic, which promised not to raise the cash rate above 0.1% until 2024. Of course, that promise proved not to be worth the paper it was written on. And I think, Ying, is the wonder down under is unique because with the additional tailwinds care of the rise of China and a protracted commodity price boom, Australia has avoided any sharp increase in its unemployment rate, which stayed below 6% during the global financial crisis in 2008. Since the last real recession we've had locally way back in 1991. Crucially, this has meant that both bank and non-bank lenders 
have not had to deal with a proper default cycle for 33 years, which has in turn deprived them of much needed experience and expertise in dealing with the rise of complex delinquencies. But we face a very different world today, I think. Uh, Risk-free interest rates have climbed off their 0% lower bound to sit between 5 and 6% across most of the world. Here in Australia, a much more dovish RBA is experimenting with rolling the dice with inflation by keeping its cash rate at a significantly lower 4.35%, which is conspicuously below the 5% plus level recommended by all of its publicly available economic models when we run them, as the recently departed senior RBA executive Jonathan Kearns has highlighted. Kearns has become chief economist of uh, Challenger, and he's run the same models that we run, and they all say the same thing, that the RBA should be at 5% plus. This is despite also the RBA forecasting that it's not going to get inflation back to its 2.5% target until all the way through to 2026, at a time when it confronts a worrying combination of loose fiscal policy, accelerating wage growth, and rapid re-regulation of the labour market that is likely to undermine productivity that is already at its lowest level in 30 years. Taken together, these variables are obviously a toxic cocktail for inflation. The heightened investor demand that we are seeing for Australasian bank bonds is welcome given uh, the banks have to repay the remaining $100 billion that they borrowed from the RBA during the pandemic. Uh, and this has precipitated elevated bond issuance volumes at historically appealing spreads. So in January, those Westpac and ANZ five-year senior bond issues came at respectively 100 basis points and 96 basis points over the cash rate proxy, significantly wider than the long-run average spread around 70 to 80 basis points. Big four Australasian major banks and Macquarie also have to meet the regulator's target that they have uh, T2 bonds outstanding worth about 6.5%. The big four Australasian major banks and Macquarie also have to meet the regulator's target to have tier two debt outstanding uh, worth at least six and a half percent of their risk-weighted assets by the 1st of January 2026. And that's what's been powering all the T2 issuance. Accounting for the uh, T2 trades this year, that is in 2024, we estimate that the four majors in Macquarie will still need to issue a total of about $37 billion of tier two in gross terms over the remainder of 2024 and 2025 to hit uh, the regulators' targets. This is gross issuance, so it ignores any maturities. And we further project that you know, in part to repay the $100 billion they borrowed off the central bank, the four majors of Macquarie will issue about $210 billion of senior bonds globally in 2024 and 2025. Now, this includes uh, the stuff that they've already issued in the first couple of months of the year. So where credit spreads on Australasian bank bonds head will really depend is on the interplay between this supply and any changes in investor demand. So, CJ... Can you talk us through the recent changes in interest rate expectations for 2024 and what's been driving this? And ultimately, can you talk our listeners through what it means for the default cycle? Yeah, of course, you So markets have radically uh, pared back expectations for cuts this year from the Fed. In January, they're expecting 150 to 160 basis points of cuts, and they're expecting the Fed to start cutting in March. At the time we're recording this podcast, markets were pricing in just over three cuts rather than seven plus for the Fed. Uh, so a little more than 75 basis points of cuts. So they've taken more than half the cuts that they had penciled in for 2024 out of the forecast for this year. And the first Fed cut is not expected until the second half of the year. And as you would know, you know, we've really been banging the table relentlessly. I felt very repetitious in saying this, 
about the fact that the path for global services inflation will determine what happens to rates and asset prices in 2024. Our argument has been that most of the improvement in the inflation pulse has been an artifact of temporary goods deflation, which cannot continue in perpetuity. Now, of course, the attenuation in inflation pressures driven by this goods deflation late last year was really responsible for triggering this big risk rally and expectations of early interest rate relief. Yet we've asserted that once the supply chain normalization process is exhausted and goods deflation desists, core inflation could increase sharply again as a result of elevated services inflation, where the latter is being driven by tight labor markets and very robust wage growth. And Ying, as we were unsurprised to see dovish market participants shocked by an extremely strong uh, recent inflation print characterized by an awkward combination of rebounding services inflation counterbalanced by accelerating goods deflation. And this is responsible for US 10-year government bond yields surging back from their lows recently around 3.8% to north of 4.3%, noting that they hit as high as 5% in October last year. So what happened with this US inflation data? Well, we saw the timely monthly inflation data out of the US print 0.4% for core inflation in January, which pushed the three-month annualized pace up from 3% in October to 3.6% in January. On our internal analysis, years, the annualized trend in core inflation has climbed from 3% to 4%, which in turn implies that the Fed's task of securing sustainable price stability, as proxied by inflation around 2%, will be exceedingly challenging. I think what was most disconcerting for investors uh, was the underlying influences on these uh, January inflation numbers. On the one hand, supply-side affected core goods prices fell even faster in January, declining 0.3%, which stretched a sequence of declines in almost every month for goods prices over the last year. On our numbers, goods deflation in the US is running at about 2.1%, so that's a negative number, just to be clear, on an annualized trend basis. In contrast, and this is the crucial bit, demand-side-driven core services inflation actually accelerated in January, appreciating 0.7% in the month, which was the fastest pace since late 2022. And on our trend analysis, annualized core services price inflation in the US has bounced from a low of about 4.6% in July last year to over 6.3%, or from 3% in May to 6.5% in January. A further worry is that the distribution of price changes suggests that inflation in the US is becoming more broad-based, with Coolbar's estimate of the trend annualized change in trimmed mean inflation rising from 3% in July to about 4.5% in January. So Ying is this was not part of the dovish script that has really driven asset prices higher since late 2023. As you know, inflation was supposed to be mean reverting towards 2%. The hope was that the Fed would start cutting rates in March, and yet the specter of a deferral of the start of the monetary policy easing process is something that we have repeatedly warned investors about. To the avoidance of any doubt, the risk for investors is that this US inflation data, which is amongst the most timely we receive globally, is a harbinger of the advent of secular stagflation. To confidently quell services inflation, the rapid growth in labor costs or wages needs to be brought under control. All else being equal, this would normally require a meaningful increase in unemployment, which has failed to materialize. For all the ebullient backslapping about the absence of a recession and the assuredness around a soft landing, I really want to warn folks, this cycle is not yet over. 
What we do know is that the global economy has been temporarily insulated over 22 and 23 from the impact of these huge interest rate increases by the unprecedented cash buffers consumers built up during the pandemic, which have now in the US and Europe mostly been spent. In the US alone, this was worth two years of extra economic growth. In Europe, the cash buffers were worth about one and a half years of extra growth. And in Australia, they're worth about three years of growth. But this money has mostly now been exhausted. The one standout global anomaly here is, of course, Australia, where in Wokistan we had you know, some of the harshest lockdowns on the planet. Uh, and we had some of the most generous fiscal handouts seen anywhere. And as a result, we had um, basically the biggest cash buffers built in the world. Globally, however, cracks are starting to appear. New Zealand has reported 12 months of negative GDP growth. They're in recession. The UK have reported 12 months of negative GDP growth. Japan has reported two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Last year, uh, US bankruptcies amongst companies covered by Standard & Poor's were the worst since 2010. Global corporate defaults in January 2024 were the worst since 2010. And the highest bankruptcies last year recorded in the US since 2010 uh, occurred at a time when you know, the US is ostensibly as strong as 10 men, with very low 3.66% unemployment, above trend GDP growth, and very brisk wage inflation. So CJ, what does this tell us? And are we seeing a two-speed economy? Yeah, Yingers, I think you're right. Um, that's undoubtedly what we're starting to see emerge. These data really insinuate that while many continue to do well, cyclically sensitive sectors are going to struggle, and that's only going to get worse, especially if the rate relief is deferred. The fact is that borrowers who predicated their finances and business models on the assumption of the availability of persistently cheap money are increasingly in serious strife. And we're seeing this start to resonate, especially clearly in the Aussie home loan data. While house prices are appreciating and many feel more confident about their prospects, mortgage stress and the tails of the risk distribution is rising at an alarming rate years. As you know, our quant systems automatically track delinquencies on all securitized home loans issued by banks and non-banks in Australia. Whereas bankeries have only risen modestly, stress in the non-bank lending space is a completely different matter. The 30-day delinquency rate on non-conforming or subprime Aussie home loans has risen from around 2.5% to circa 4%, which is a big deal. If we examine the higher quality prime home loans written by non-banks, the 30-day arrears rate has more than doubled from about 0.7% to 1.6%, and it looks like it's heading one way, and that's also a big deal. Crucially, these prime home loan arrears on non-bank assets or non-bank RMBS compare very poorly with the changes in the arrears on the bank's prime loans, which has crept up from 0.7% to 1%. Obviously, the key difference here is regulation. The non-banks are completely unregulated. The banks are regulated to within an inch of their life by one of the world's toughest banking regulators. Of course, if you look back through history, you will find that there have, in fact, been benign economic periods where the prime home loans issued by non-banks have reported arrears rates they're actually slightly lower than those on prime bank home loans. This could lead one to the completely spurious conclusion that prime non-bank home loans were of comparable quality to prime bank home loans. But as soon as a stress test materialises, like the current interest rate shock, we're seeing a massive disconnect in the quality between bank and non-bank loans. Yet we've seen that during any stress event, such as March 2020 or the period since the RBA started lifting rates in May 2022, there is a striking bifurcation in the credit quality across unregulated non-bank lenders and regulated banks. 
Hey, CJ, uh, we mentioned this at the start of the podcast. One final thought or question. What do you think on geopolitics? Well, Ying is, you know, the experts say that Donald Trump is likely to become the next US president. And he's campaigning on a very clear platform, which involves massively reducing immigration, so shutting the borders, and also slapping very large tariffs on all imports from China. Now, we saw during the pandemic, when you shut the borders, wage inflation goes through the roof, and clearly slapping tariffs on Chinese products is going to be highly inflationary. So at a time when the US is struggling to dampen rampant services inflation driven by very strong growth in labour costs, Unfortunately, Trump could once again prove to be a toxic curveball for markets to contend with. And I think investors should really approach the next year with a very open minding as as to the distribution of potential parts for asset prices. So I think that wraps up this podcast, Yingers. Thank you guys for listening. Anyone who persevered to the end of the podcast, I think it was fairly short and snappy. And uh, we love engaging with you folks, love all the questions we receive. If you have a question, email us at info at coolabarcapital.com. And otherwise, we're just going to continue to grind away every day on the tools here at Coolabar, trying to make every basis point count. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.